Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Hip-hop started out as a party. As we covered on our earlier episode, Hip Hop Turns 50, a meditation on hip-hop's birth, its Bronx-based forefathers were stewards of positivity and a vibe that lasted hours on end. There was no vocation per se, just crates of vinyl records, loads of stoned partygoers and artists, and the four elements of hip-hop, DJing, MCing, b-boying or breakdancing, and graffiti. And then there was a seismic event, the release and booming success of the Sugar Hill Gang's single, Rapper's Delight, which broke out onto radios across the country in 1979. Suddenly, the most parochial of musical cultures was an export. Now came an opportunity to capitalize on that opportunity and present hip-hop as a product to the world. But how? And how much? And by whom? This is the time hip-hop started to come of age, and from 1980 to 1985, a monumental evolution and first foot forward occurred. That's what we're talking about and covering on this episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We'll talk about the efforts to legitimize hip-hop within the worlds of commerce and art, and about the hustlers who were first to make moves. We'll tell you about guys like Russell Simmons and Curtis Blow, young dudes who got two hit songs on the radio and set recorded hip-hop in a clear direction. We'll then run through a staggeringly great run of singles that gave early hip-hop further shape, color, and meaning from artists including Africa Bombada and the Soul Sonic Force, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and the dueling duo of UTFO and Roxanne Shantae. We end by discussing the arrival of the album as a hip-hop art form. We weave together the stories of Profile Records, Run DMC, Def Jam, and LL Cool J, from whom we got a signature hip-hop sound and two classic albums. Oh, and we make mention of a few silly movies you may have heard of, too. Before hip-hop became gripped by the, the dark violence of the Biggie and Tupac days, and then by the sing-songy insufferability of Kanye West and Drake, it was a bright-eyed and excitingly young genre that found its way as it went along. And its path as a recorded music and a bona fide product took place between 1980 and 1985. And that's where we will dial up the Wayback Machine on this episode. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. So Arturo, you know that there's a place where hip-hop uh, still flourishes, real hip-hop that is, still flourishes, right? Gee, where is that? 
Uh, that would be our parallel universe. Welcome, folks, again to the parallel universe. Uh, over here, uh, you know, where blue is green and tall is short and uh, everything is uh, a little bit different, especially uh, people's musical tastes. That is rock and roll and hip hop and the really good stuff is still predominates. It still uh, is on, uh, you know, there's still such a thing as, as, as rock radio. Uh, that's starting to dwindle, folks. Uh, you know, they're still up on the billboards. They still sell Rolling Stone. Uh, you still sell out the arenas. It's not just Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Uh, it may not be as bad as Grand Funk Railroad, but it's, uh, but you know, rock and roll and 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 hip hop and all that. It's still big. It's still the thing, and it's still major, 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 man. And so mm -hmm. that that's just a long way of saying that Arturo and I cover new and newish records uh, uh, of of recent vintage. Uh, here in the par parallel universe we want to turn you on to uh, each one of us turn you on to a specific album uh that uh, we are are into and we think that you ought to know more about arturo in the parallel universe on this episode what are you covering yeah, in the parallel universe this band would be huge <laughs> i <laughs> love them uh their name the name of the band is otoboke beaver and it's their album from two years ago called super champion now coming from japan this all-female quartet released a trio of albums in the early teens before going on hiatus, then reforming in 2019 to release a fourth album. A few years later, in 2022, they released Super Champion, and it seems like the fifth time is the charm, as this record has generated a, a word-of-mouth underground cultish fan base for the band in North America and Europe, as evidenced by the substantial touring they've done lately, in addition to the various international music festivals they've been a part of. Now, what do they actually sound like? Absolute fucking chaos. Hmm. Progressive, progressive punk is what I would call them. The stylistic mishmashing of genres within one song that Beck used to do back in the day with sampling is what these ladies do with their instruments. Within the course of one song, Otoboke Beaver can go from hardcore punk to free jazz to experimental noise rock to industrial to even super melodic girly girl J-pop. Most importantly, though, they manage the remarkable feat of not alienating the listener with needlessly complex, impenetrable, overly cerebral bullshit. It isn't <laughs> contrived. It isn't contrived at all. Multiple nope. Beaver's brand of anarchic punk feels instinctual and natural, like a new portal to originality in rock music has been opened from a place of pure joy and wonder, not pretentious indie hipster douchebag posturing, i.e. most rock bands today. And yes, it's fucking catchy as hell. In a way, or in many ways, the arrival of Otoboke Beaver is the most punk rock thing to happen this decade, aside from Australia's The Chats. You just cannot go wrong uh, with, uh, with amazing song titles like I Am Not Maternal, You're No Hero, Shut Up, Fuck You, Man Whore, and Dirty Old Fart Is Waiting For My Reaction. Oh yeah, and also check out the totally anarchic bonkers video for their equally anarchic bonkers song, Don't Light My Fire. Somewhere Jim Morrison is smiling at that one. <laughs> Otoboke Beaver are enough to restore at least this curmudgeon's faith in the healing power of rock and roll. Chris? 
Yeah, uh, my favorite thing about this band and this album especially, uh, 18 songs coming in at a robust 21 minutes and 26 yeah. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that that that's less than a minute and a half a song. Yeah. Uh, that I love that. The longest song on the record is the first song, I Am Not Maternal, which is two minutes and four seconds. <laughs> uh, so uh gotta love it uh basically to me this band is is kind of like what if the go-go's tried to do the boredoms uh that's that's yeah. essentially what it is it's it's just as chaotic as the boredoms but it has that kind of uh, almost like girly that that girly energy that kind of like fun uh power pop energy so it's yeah. got it's got that go-go's uh you know early 80s los angeles energy to mm. it but you know, again, that you know, they they definitely are engineers of chaos. Uh, yeah, I like I like them. They're 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 neat. They're there's definitely no one else like them in rock. Uh, yeah. it's it's hard these days to come up with a completely original shtick. Yeah, and uh, Ata, what is it? Ataboke beaver. Otoboke. Otoboke. Yes. Beavers. Uh, you know, you 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 really got the pronunciation down cold, man. I, I wonder. I wonder if they know the double meaning of the word beaver. <laughs> they, 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 they probably do. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're pretty sharp. Uh, they seem pretty sharp. I mean, for, yeah, they gotta be sharp to come up with something like this. This is yeah. just sort of this weird off kilter, uh, concoction of all those styles. And I, I was listening to it today for the first time I was on the treadmill. Boy, yeah. what, what, what a, what a interesting treadmill song. Or treadmill <laughs> album it goes yeah. all over the place let's just put it this way you're not going to be doing any sort of rhythmic type of shuffle when you yeah. when you when you do this it's just uh otherwise you might fall off the damn treadmill you'll take a header <laughs> uh so that that was quite the experience but yeah i, I definitely recommend this album too it's um uh, uh, originality uh there's there's not enough of it in this world there's plenty of it in the parallel universe, and uh, yeah, this band is definitely, uh, they may be actually be the house band for the parallel universe now. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's how that's how it's going. So yeah. so now we've talked about this 18-song, 22-minute record. Uh, Arturo, on the heels of that, how does 79 minutes of space cowboy noodling and yelling sound to you? Yeah, by comparison, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> eh, it's actually not quite as bad as it sounds. I mean, I I know that that description sounds insufferable. I mean, me, I tend to be a fan of big, dumb, loud, goofy, hard rock. And uh, this album that I'll be talking about certainly fits that description to a T. Uh, we're talking about the, the French uh, trio Slift and their new album, Ilion, uh, which mm -hmm. just came out in January. Uh, I tend to be more in uh, this band's wheelhouse as far as intended listenership. Uh, mm -hmm. But but objectively speaking, I will say this. Uh, yes, it's it's 10 songs and 79 minutes long. And and yes, it, it it has a lot of fat and a lot of trim. And it's it's just this this big bombastic prog album. But they could have toned it down just a tad. Uh, really, how you feel about this outfit, this uh, French prog outfit slift. It really depends on how you feel about 1970s space rock. <laughs> uh, it's 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 one of these things where there's not not going to be too much middle ground. Like if you're a big fan of Pink Floyd, Rush, King Crimson, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Black Sabbath, and other groups and of Hawk that Wind. ilk, and Hawkwind, and 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 you know artists of that ilk, then you can probably uh, say that that you can enjoy that you're capable of enjoying uh, this band. 
you know, and really they get this, they get it down to a T to the point where their guitarist pretty much owes uh, David Gilmore a tip. She, he should get like 5% of all the money he makes just <laughs> yeah. because he, he basically is, is, is a, a wonderfully talented ripoff of David Gilmore uh, <laughs> for sure. And so uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the space rock. And so I can definitely uh, appreciate this album and I can definitely listen to it in spurts. It's, it's one, I think it's mood music. It's like, you really have to be in a, uh, a mood to go down that, uh, you know, we were talking before we recorded down that sort of that prog rock rabbit hole. And yeah. it's, it's a, it's a very loud, screechy, uh, droney reverby rabbit hole. Uh, but you know, you really got to be in that mood to do it. And so I see myself listening to this album in pieces, maybe not the whole thing, but the, the, you know, there's a couple of great actual, uh, in, individual, uh, tracks. There's the 11 minute opener, Ilion, you know, the, uh, the title track, which it features a pulsating bass and a bell and really some bell crisp guitar wankery, uh, mm -hmm. that ought to, again, just get on its knees and bow down to David Gilmore. <laughs> and uh, it really, uh, you know, th these guys, they're they're kind of hard to understand in the sense that uh, because of all the reverb and it's yelly, this dude doesn't sing, yells. Yeah. And so, uh, so once you, but, you know, sit down and go find lyrics and, and enjoy it because uh, this one's got a particularly enjoyably goofy one. Uh, quote, we've seen the monuments of gods rising from the dust to the sky. We've heard the thunder and seen the lightning heralding a storm from the depths of time. We felt the wind and the rain on our skin. Our faces lifted to the clouds. We were thousands. We were one. Now the human age is gone. The engine's fire burning like millions suns. Fury as a flame in the eyes of daughters and sons. And from the torn sky are falling angels. Hell fire engines. And from the torn sky are falling angels. End quote. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so like I said, you know, for, for, for people that appreciate the goofiness of stuff like this, this, this'll, this'll be, this'll work. Uh, there's yeah. also a song called Yurik, uh, spelled U-R-U-K, which I suppose is supposed to be a, uh, uh, name of an alien or a planet or, or something. And, uh, this is a slow burning romp with a, with a catchy little riff. And it's got reverb on loan from the heavens and barely decipherable harmony vocals. Uh, how how indecipherable? I've never seen this before. Even the popular lyric sites like Genius can't help us out here. <laughs> you, you go there and it says uh, unavailable. But but <laughs> hey, the song pounds and it grinds in an engaging fashion anyway. Uh, as I said before, uh, one thing about doing a ten song seven, seventy nine minute. Um, album is that you end up risking self-indulgence <laughs> and uh that's kind of what happens here uh there it's a little self-indulgent it's a little it's it's purely ridiculous they know it's ridiculous uh this this uh, uh band by the way uh they have great album covers yeah uh, you remember when they did the 2020s uman which was kind of an it uh album and a, a lot better than this one by the way it's, it, it's yes it's, it's tighter and more song focused uh, and has, you know, uh, even like sharper uh, David Gilmore ripoffs uh, than that one. But that album cover, it, it had like a demon on a planet with stars and planets and shit in the background. Uh, <laughs> and on this album, 
uh, it's uh, it's skeletal looking aliens puking intestines, or it, it it looks like they're puking intestines, and so yeah, it sounds like you guys are kind of ripping off a page from the King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard book. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, they're 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 doing lots of uh, yeah, you know, space cadet rock uh, for sure. Right. So ultimately, you know, it the album really didn't need to be this bloated or bombastic, and they could have dialed it down a little bit. But at the same time, with a band like Swift, what would be the point of that? Yeah. So, well, yeah, the, the point comes in their first album, Uman, from 2020, which was in both of our top 10 lists uh, yeah. of that year. Yeah. I generally like Slift, um, so, but it's, that's why it saddens me to say that this album kind of kind of sucks for a lot of the reasons that you gave. Uh, mm -hmm. Disc, it's a double album. Disc one tends to like merge the heavy sheet guitar sludge metal of neurosis with like that heavily heavily complex multi uh, polyrhythms of post metal bands like death heaven but it merges it in a really unappealing way <laughs> because like you said there are no fucking songs there's just yeah. sound and sound and sound yeah and it's just and, ba bang ba bang ba bang ba bang yeah. ba bang ba bang this right and disc two what they're doing is a little different what they're doing is just Heavy, heavy, ponderous, ominous prog rock with a lot of like a a, a choral hymnal, uh, a choir vocals. Yeah, not not unlike Amon Duel, <laughs> but yep. again in the worst way imaginable. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> yeah, Neurosis, Death Heaven, Amon Duel. Those bands are all great together. Done by Slift, they just don't inject them with songs you need songs yeah at least i'm on dual knew, knew knew how to write songs yes they did and to, and to that's this, that, that's a fair complaint sound through you know now, now like i said in the beginning you know i i'm i'm one of those people in their kind of their core listenership that will will give them a free pass on not having enough songs just yeah. because i like this kind of cosmic slop yeah. uh you know I'm, I'm i'm a fan of it and so uh, I'll generally speaking, uh, at least once a week, I'm in the mood for something like this slift record, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and so, so this will scratch that itch, but yeah, if you're looking for formalism, uh, right. this is, this is not your record. Uh, they've shown that they're capable of it on Uman, uh, yeah. but, uh, ain't no such thing as formalism here. You know, like you said, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the, the, the dark side of Amon duel, which is to right. say that, yeah. yeah, don't, 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 don't expect anything too tuneful. The ass side of Amandul. Chris here again. Arturo and I have differing feelings about the subscription streaming service Spotify. While he likes to rail against the algorithmic component, I like the ability to find and then manage a personal catalog of music. The program is especially great for assembling playlists. Well, guess what? We've assembled a playlist to accompany this episode. The playlist features a healthy mix of all the music we describe and analyze during the episode. Think of it as a soundtrack to your curmudgeonly life. Find the link in this episode's description. And also become a member of our curmudgeonly community on Facebook if you haven't done so already. Let's now return to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, so we named this episode Hip Hop Comes of Age and in parentheses, 1980 to 1985. Because, as uh, I alluded to earlier in the parameter setter, this is the period where hip-hop starts to be commercialized and starts to become a commercial force. And uh, we'll talk about the many ways in which it did become that during this period. But before that happened, a little group 
<laughs> so with a song called Rapper's Delight, kickstarted the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, 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 absolutely. So this is one of the great flukes in the history of, of, of popular uh, music. And this is where it starts. Now, uh, as we said in our first, uh, we did an episode last year where we talked about, uh, and it coincided with the 50th anniversary of hip hop, about the birth of hip hop. And we talked a lot about how it really started off as a cultural phenomenon. And it was as mm. much about culture and about partying as it was about music. And it was a bunch of uh, uh, imp severely impoverished kids just looking for a little bit of positivity and self-esteem by building this culture around the parties. Uh, yeah. They had no idea or they, they weren't even thinking that this could ever be anything that was a, a musical product. I mean, yeah. because a lot of the, the emceeing and a lot of the, the shows, these guys would be out there, you know, doing the equivalent of a, a, a mix of call and response and dance hall toasting and then yeah. some, you know, actual lyrical uh, forays. And, but they'd be going for like three or four hours at a time. Uh, yeah. And so it was kind of inconceivable that this could ever be reduced to tape. Well, lo and behold, it took three guys from Edgewater, New Jersey, and uh, and an upstart label called Sugar Hill Records uh, <laughs> to really get this thing going. Uh, so what happens is, is you've got a woman named Sylvia Robinson, who uh, her and her husband are running a small label called Sugar Hill Records, but they're not really getting it off the ground and they're struggling. Well, Sylvia Robinson is introduced to hip hop. And so now right. she's thinking, well, this is something that I have to try to get on tape. Well, she's at a pizza parlor. This is how the story goes. A pizza parlor one day in Edgewater, New Jersey. And there's a, a, a guy there who was managing the rapper Grandmaster Kaz, actually, uh, at the time. But he's working at this pizza joint to you know help pay for his managerial uh, forays. A guy named Big Bank Hank. And he's sitting there uh, rapping to himself while he's working some Grandmaster Kaz lyrics. Well, Sylvia Robinson overhears this and says, oh, ooh, ooh, that's what I'm looking for. That's the sound I'm looking for. Yeah. And so Hank, you know, he gathers up a couple of other guys uh, that he knew, uh, one guy named Wonder Mike and another guy, Master G. They yeah. audition for uh, Sylvia Robinson. And pretty quickly, they're in a studio uh, jamming out with a house band, uh, you know, with an interpolation of Good Times by Chic. Yeah. And they go they were able to distill the hip the hip hop thing down into 15 minutes, which, <laughs> again, was remarkably short considering where things uh, where things started. And from there is born a phenomenon. I'm quoting Jeff Chang. Uh, I'll be drawing from two books a lot in our discussion uh, on this episode. One, uh, Jeff Chang is the author of a 2005 book, uh, a, a a biography of the hip hop generation called can't stop won't stop uh, yeah. which i definitely recommend and the, the other uh, book i'll be talking or i'll be quoting from is a book uh, that was just released last fall actually called the come up uh, by an author named jonathan abrams it's an oral history of the rise of of hip hop and so uh, so i'm going to start by quoting jeff chang from can't stop won't stop where he says this about uh, about rappers delight in the sugar hill gang Quote, when three anonymous rappers stepped into black indie label owner Sylvia Robinson's studios to cut rappers to light, they had no local expectations to fulfill. They had no street reputations to keep, no regular audience to please, and absolutely no consequences if they failed, which was true. This, these guys had no association whatsoever with the scene in the Bronx. They were just three random dudes. And then Chang writes a little bit later. 
quote, in 15 minutes, clearly the whole world had changed. And mm. so uh, and so it, it has uh, lots of reverberations uh, in a couple of ways. You know, one, it, it kind of is an oh shit moment for the guys from the Bronx. Uh, and you know, they're, obviously they're all, uh, they're all annoyed and they, yeah. they're not, they're not exactly sure how, uh, how to react. Uh, yeah. this, this coming from, uh, from the, the come up, we're, uh, quoting DJ Charlie Chase of the Cold Crush Brothers. He says, quote, when Rappers Delight came out, it set hip hop back five years. Hip hop started in 73 <laughs> in 77. That shit was preschool for us at that point. We were already rhyming. And then yeah. Easy AD, one of his bandmates in the Cold Crushers, Cold Crush Brothers, says, "We heard the song. We just thought it was whack. We looked at it at like what they not even MCs." <laughs> and so, so what ended up happening is now these guys who are pretty advanced, they have to take a step back when they get themselves signed, and they have to start sounding like the Sugar Hill Gang, mm. and and do this more disco kind of disco and funk oriented thing. You know, and, you know, it's not as minimal or anything like that. So that now they have to do it as this pop music. Uh, but after, but alas, the Sugar Hill Gang did have the first mover advantage and they set the precedent. Uh, they're the alpha from which the rest was born and formed. Now, uh, just how big did Rapper's Delight get? Uh, well, it actually, and this is pretty amazing. In January 1980, Rapper's Delight peaked at number 36 on the Billboard mm. Hot 100, wow. and it also was number four on the Hot Soul Singles chart in December of 79. Wow. And uh, it had a lot of international success. It reached number one in Canada. It reached number one in the Netherlands. It re reached number three in the UK. And uh, it, it also is the most successful 12-inch single of all time. This is uh, back in the early days. This is how uh, uh, urban labels would release their music with, with with these 12 inch singles and this kind of became the early uh on vinyl this became kind of the early uh hip-hop uh main format before yeah. albums you know albums become a thing and we'll talk about that in 1984 uh before right. that you're really talking about tw these 12 inch singles well this is the number one selling uh, 12 inch single of all time at Jesus. one point at one point uh sugar hill records they were printing and shipping seventy five thousand copies a week, Jeez. and and so they were they were dominating radio in New York. They were dominating the record stores in New York. You know, like the the trucks. You know, according to these couple books, the trucks would roll in, up to the record store, uh, drop off the crates, and the the copies would be gone by the end of the day. Uh, wow. So it was it was really selling like uh, selling like hotcakes, and it was just this absolute phenomenon. Uh, you know, go going to, back to the come up, uh, Bill Stephanie, who was a famous uh, A&R uh, guy at, and, and publicist at uh, Def Jam and also a member of the Bomb Squad, which was the production crew uh, that uh, helped birth Public Enemy. Uh, uh, Bill Stephanie says, quote, there's no way to convey how popular Rapper's Delight was as a song. It was like it was everywhere to the point where you just had to say to yourself, wow, this is revolutionary. This is not just a new art. This is not funk. This is not even just James Brown. This is larger than that. So even at the time, you know, you, nobody had ever heard anything like this. You know, basically just these three dudes just kind of rhythmic talking over the same motif for 15 yeah. minutes. And so, you know, so this is like an alien life form that comes down that, you know, people aren't really sure uh, what hit them. 
And so that leads to the inevitable question. Well, okay, what next? Now what? <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we, what, I, what do I, we do? I feel, yeah, I Go feel ahead. bad for guys like Cool Herc, all these pioneers, yeah. you know, and, and and like all of a sudden this, you know, basically a, this a, a pre-manufactured, prefabricated group just step in front of them. <laughs> yeah, well, and take, take all, all all the all the accolades and all the and all the record sales. <laughs> yeah, but to be to be fair, I mean, you got to remember that the pioneers weren't in it. To they had no notion that there was an industry or that there was a commodity uh, to be had. Yeah. And right. uh, the really telling quote, and we're going to use this to kind of a couple of quotes to segue uh, into this next section of okay, well, Sugar Hill Gang hits now. Now what happens? But Kumo D. Uh, mm-hmm. who was a member of the Treacherous Three and actually had a, a, a pretty strong solo career uh, starting in the late 80s. Uh, you, yeah. A lot of people will probably remember the Wild Wild West, uh, that right. song and video from uh, 1988. But anyway, Kumo D says, quote, I personally thought it was a one-off. I didn't think that they were ever going to turn hip-hop into an industry because, quite frankly, it was just African-American teenagers. We were the yeah. last generation that was consciously bred not to believe in ourselves. Mm. Putting a rhyme together and then going out and saying the rhyme and seeing if people respond was a huge boost to self-esteem. But we had an older generation telling us that this isn't real music. It's not going to last. Who's going to pay to hear people talk over records that already came out, that you don't play any instrument? Who's going to sit there and watch a DJ scratch records? <laughs> and then uh, another telling quote from Grandmaster Kaz, who's a part, part that, you know, Big Bang Hank was his manager and uh, Hank famously stole lyrics. <laughs> to hmm. use it, it, on Rapper's Delight. So Grandmaster Kaz says this. He says, we hadn't accepted the fact that hip-hop had started to spread to other places. We were still under this veil of, yeah, we're from the Bronx. Mm. And so so what what does happen then? So clearly, uh, you know, hip-hop had, uh, you know, extended a little bit of a reach, at least into the tri-state area, and at least out to Ed- Edgewater, New Jersey. And so now you have this race that the Sugar Hill Gang is out there. So now, uh, how do you follow that and what do you do with it? And how exactly do you make it into uh, an industry? Well, uh, things kind of proceed on on three fronts that uh, that really the Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight open the doors for. And I'll, I'll cover all three. So what one, uh, there became a rush to sign artists and generate singles. And it became the sort of entrepreneur's rush and a race. Yeah, hip-hop, hip-hop was very much a singles-driven market for a long time. Yes, for a long time. And so now it's this idea of now you have all these labels, you know, the Sugar Hill uh, Records, uh, for instance, they signed Grandmaster Flash and the Furious, Furious Five, which is funny because uh, Grandmaster Flash was on record, according to Can't Stop, Won't Stop, as being one of those guys that never thought that uh, in a million years that hip-hop could ever be a, rec- a recording uh, yeah. thing and so uh so you have you know these artists you know the cold crush brothers and the treacherous three and uh the the, the fantastic five freaks you know they're mm-hmm. all you know they're all yeah. signing uh, uh to labels uh, at this point but then you also have some folks that are trying to extend and and find new contours and, and follow up and and follow up on the the heels of the uh of the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight by coming up with their own pop music. Uh, right. the, the most, uh, uh, I think, concrete example of this is uh, an interesting uh, partnership that r- emerged 
there's a journalist uh, and a promoter, a guy named uh, Rocky Ford, uh, who, yeah, Robert Rocky Ro Ford. Before Rocky Ford, there was Rocky Ford. <laughs> yeah, Robert Rocky Ford. I must break you. Uh, but anyway, so he he connects with Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons, uh, you know, obviously everybody knows who Russell is, the founder of Def Jam. Uh, and one of the, the forefathers of, of uh, the hip-hop industry. Uh, he's starting out as a young promoter, and he had hooked up with Rocky Ford, and uh, Ford came up with an idea to, let's say, wouldn't it be cute if we had a Christmas wrap? <laughs> and so Simmons at that point was connected with Curtis Blow, and Curtis mm. Blow was from Harlem. Uh, Simmons was from Hollis, Queens. And they, so that these three guys... Ford Simmons and uh, Curtis Blow, uh, they get together and. Well, I have a question, Chris. Curtis Blow, his that was his stage name. Was that like a nod to cocaine use? His name? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that for sure, but I would I would be shocked if it wasn't. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that that was that that was probably the uh, the, the, the the hood wink wink. But you got to remember, like one one of the original MCs was Coke Larock. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that, that that was kind of that was kind of the thing. So uh, so these guys get together and uh, together with a few other musicians, they come up with the song Christmas Rappin' mm. and which is a really ridiculous kind of almost discoish uh, song. It's, it's only like four minutes long or something like that. It, it's well, seven and a half minutes long, but it's uh, basically about uh, them holding a party on Christmas and then Santa showing up and, and getting down as well <laughs> and so it was cute but it became a big hit it you know became a big radio uh, hit as well and then they followed that up with another song we'll talk about a little, little bit later called the breaks and uh which Them's is all the breaks yeah just a marvelous marvelous uh, little hip-hop uh, song and so so again you know you, so you're, you're getting some folks that are figuring out how to extend this they're kind of doing it in the same vein as as Rapper's Delight. I mean, even Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they had an early song from 1980 called Super Rappin', uh, which goes on for 12 minutes and is the same kind of, uh, you know, disco interpolated, uh, just kind of get down, uh, boogie woogie kind of mm -hmm. ki kind of track. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so you get a, a lot of a lot of that uh, going on during this period. And then through this, you also get some of the artists that were big in the Bronx that were, you know, some of the kings of the party. Bambata, for example, mm, are, are right. figuring out ways to uh, to put their vision uh, and their idea of hip hop culture on uh, on record. Uh, Bambata eventually hooks up with Tommy Boy Records in its infancy, and you know mm. they release a, a series of amazing singles. They never got an album out of Bambata, but they got like six or seven amazing singles. And we'll right. talk about one of those uh, a little bit later. And so that's what's happening during this period. Uh, the, initially, in in just right after, uh, right after the the breakout of of uh, Rapper's Delight, is you get this rush to figure out how else we can put it on tape, and if we can, we if we can figure this out and and distill it down into a more of a pop music. And so you're getting yeah. that. Uh, and then you've got two interrelated uh, uh, movements as well. So you, at the same time that you have this rush to see if you can sign artists and make singles and and get you know, get hip hop more hip hop on the radio, 
you also get this uh, effort to legitimize hip hop in the swankier clubs and in the downtown art scene in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a big thing. And this is really in other words, a, mid- middle class white people in this case. Yeah, no, upper upper class white people. We're not oh, talking yeah, okay. just we're not talking middle class. We're talking the artsy fartsies. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is really a story about Fab Five Freddy, Fred Bra- mm-hmm. Bra- uh, Fred Braithwaite. Uh, so uh, he really ends up being the bridge uh, between worlds. Uh, he's a like a, a, a like an academic class kid from Queens. You know, and like he had like Thelonious Monk as a house guest when he was growing up and he kind of happened and seen. But he's Fat Five Freddy became a a really well-renowned graffiti artist Mm -hmm. along with his partner Lester Quinones in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, Freddy just had this gift for going in between worlds. And so he's he's the one that he's going down to the Bronx and forming the relationships with the Bambadas. And uh, the Grand Wizard Theodores and and the, sort of the 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 uh, the pioneers of that scene. Right. But he's right. also because he's uh, you know he's chosen graffiti as his main art and he's trying to legitimize that. He's making contacts down in in the downtown art scene and and right. and the galleries and coming up with his ex- exhibitions. And so uh, he ends up being this really important uh, middleman. Uh, for everything that's going on. And uh, here's a quote from Grandmaster Flash, and this comes from Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Grandmaster Flash talking about Fab Five Freddy, again, uh, Fred Braithwaite. Fab was like one of the town criers. He would come into the hood where whites wouldn't come and then go downtown where the whites would and say, listen, there's some music these cats is playing, man. It's hot shit. You got to book these guys. So I got my first taste of playing for an audience that wasn't typically black, end quote. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. I mean, a couple of famous examples that he, uh, Freddie, was able to invite Bambata uh, to play at a Keith Haring exhibition opening on St. Mark's Place in mm-hmm. uh, in 1980. And in April of 1981, uh, he had an exhibition opening for his own. It was a, a series of graffiti artists, and it was an exhibition that was happening down there. But he was able to get the Cold Crush Brothers, the Jazzy Five MCs, which were a Bambada-related or uh, group, and the Fantastic Freaks. He got them to play the uh, the exhibition opening party. So he got them uh, uh, he got them eyeballs, and he got them an audience with uh, with a white art, art artsy artiste crowd. Yeah, yeah. And 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 also, you know, Freddie also was friends with Chris Stein and uh, Debbie Harry. Uh, right. I was going to talk about that. Yeah, because in yeah. 1980. Uh, uh, actually, this is probably the epitome of that bridge between yeah. um, you know, the, the hip hop scene in the Bronx and the mm-hmm. lower Manhattan art world, you know, mm-hmm. art scene that was going on. Blondie were an art pop band, really, basically from mm-hmm. New York and the CBGB scene. And uh, they put out the single Rapture uh, in 1980, which had kind of a disco, it's kind of a disco y song following yeah. in the vein of a, of, a, of a Heart of Glass, but it features Debbie Harry actually rapping yep <laughs> so it's actually so people talk about the sugar hill gang is the first rap song to be big well the second big rap song or the, or the second big song to feature rapping that made that was a number one hit was blondie <laughs> with yep. rapture where she actually name checks fad five freddy in her yes her rapping 
<laughs> yeah, and and Freddy, uh, Fat Five Freddy is in the video for Rapture, and yes. I, I also want to say Baskets in that in, in that video too in the background. I'll, I'll just see, but I'm, I'm Fat Five Freddy's definitely in it because he gets a lot of he's he's practically dancing with Deborah Harry as or oh yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, so he's 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 definitely in the video, but Basquiat might be in it too because Basquiat's uh, background was as a graffiti artist as well. Yeah, uh, but I may be wrong about that, but I think he might be in the video, uh, uh, video too. So yeah, so the, so Freddie's kind of the networker and kind of bridging bridging the worlds, and so uh, so by doing that, it gets uh, hip hop into Central Park, it gets it into Greenwich Village, it gets it exposure to to white artists and white tourists. And so it, it starts to gain, gain a slowly gain an appeal through the early 80s uh, that way. And then there was another uh, landmark moment through this, and it's related because it involves Fred Braithwaite again. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the movie Wild Style from 1982, mm -hmm. which uh, basically is a very vivid depiction of the early hip hop scene. Mm. And, uh, well, frankly, it's not much of a movie. And even the director kind of admits that the director is an artist for, who was from upstate, I believe is from upstate New York, a guy named Charlie Ahern, who had uh, befriended uh, folks in the Bronx and had befriended Freddie and was intimately familiar with that scene and wanted to make a movie uh, centered around hip hop culture. I've never and seen so, this. Is this a narrative film or a documentary? It's it, it's a it's very thinly a narrative film, but it might as well be a documentary. Uh -huh. Because, okay. I mean, it's basically a, the story revolves around uh, Lee Quinones uh, uh, being a graffiti artist and not when it, not wanting his new girlfriend to find out that he's mm -hmm. a hip, that he's a graffiti artist. Yeah. And so it's kind of ridiculous. But it, what it does is it has all these scenes in it of rap battles, of graffiti being made in action, of b-boying, uh, of just a really famous sequence in it is when the Cold Curse Brothers... And the Fantastic Five freaks uh, get involved and, and they do an MC battle, but they do it on a basketball court. And so there's interconnecting of them being on either side of the court, having an MC, you know, like a rap battle, but also playing ball. And so it kind of equates uh, MCing and, the, and the, the, the battle rapping with sports. And so it kind of, you know, lends to that. It, it plays up that competitive nature of, of hip hop. And we've talked about hip hop culture comes straight from competition. It's, you know, who's the best, who's the prettiest, who's, yeah. you know, you know, who's the most awesome. And it comes from that. So there's that. And the show also culminates in a show uh, at a amphitheater in Brooklyn that the producers didn't even get a permit for. So, yeah, there's pure <laughs> rebel shit right there. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Freddie was intimately involved in in the networking and the making of that film as well. Lee Quinones, obviously, being his partner. Uh, another brilliant artist uh, there. And so Ahern, it, it's it's kind of a ridiculous movie, but <laughs> a, as a testament to hip hop and showing what hip hop was all about is probably the most uh, vivid. It's probably the most important depiction of hip hop from the early 80s. And what yeah. it did is it gave them a product to sell hip hop to the world. You know, yeah. they, they took it on uh, an international press tour. They ended up in Japan. You know, right. doing doing b-boying and graffiti and rapping uh, there, and so they kind of were able to tour an international and give them an international exposure. So really, there 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 it is. There's the rush to create singles and sign artists. Uh, there's the the bridging of the worlds, where uh, the the black uh, movement from the Bronx comes in contact with the white art scene of downtown Manhattan, mm. and then Wild Style 
that comes <laughs> out there and and really just kind of shows off hip hop in its true element and uh you know makes gives them a gives it another uh product and another right. product avenue uh to show itself uh, off to so so th- this period we're talking about this is really the period from 1980 to about 1982 Mm. And uh, from there, the momentum just kind of grew as as, as hip hop became this kind of revolutionary thing. You know, it had a music, it had dancing and it had art. And so it was a legitimate it was a legitimate scene. And now it's further getting legitimized uh, by the Mm. by the by these entrepreneurs, by these artists, by these uh, these visionaries uh, there uh, in the scene. On this episode, we analyze the period when hip-hop came of age. For the next episode, we're going back to our second golden age of rock series as we analyze the critical year of 1968. It was a fascinating year in regard to rock music being tugged by two extremes. Go bigger, more progressive, more psychedelic, heavier. Or go smaller, more minimalist, back to the roots of rock and roll. We'll look at seminal albums by The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Van Morrison, The Birds, The Band, The Kinks, The Grateful Dead, and others. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you The Second Golden Age of Rock, 1968. So, these singles that defined hip-hop in the early to mid-1980s, there are several of them. The first two we kind of already spoke at length about, but we'll say a little more. Christmas Rappin' and The Breaks by Curtis Blow, both 1980. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, Curtis Blow was 19 years old uh, at the time that these songs break. Uh, And uh, he's, you know, he's basically he was a hustler. You know, he was a marketing student in college and... Mm -hmm. You know, he, you know, he was just refining his chops out there on on the club scene and yeah. you know, s- selling himself really, really hard. You know, Christmas rapping, from what I understand, he didn't write most of the lyrics. But essentially, again, it's a seven and a half minute uh, disco song. Uh, the, the most notable thing about it is, uh, you know, that song uh, that, you know, that bass line from the Queen song, another one bites the dust. Yeah, yeah. They stole it from Christmas rapping. <laughs> and so uh, so that baseline is featured prominently on you know that dung 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 uh, that <laughs> a, that absolutely is is the defining thing and sped up on Christmas yeah. rapping and goes on for seven and a half minutes it's got lyrics about Santa Claus it's corny as hell but it's funny as hell and it just you know Christmas was ready made for uh for early hip-hop it's done in the in the vein of disco like most most of the stuff like the first three or four years most of it is offshoots of disco yeah and uh that was definitely the case with christmas rapping uh the breaks is a little bit different uh and the breaks is pretty tremendous it's still seven minute minute long but there's a lot of uh, artists including cool modi who really give this credit as being like the first real hip-hop song because it's the first one that had a hook you know, yeah. like we said, these are the breaks. Yeah. You know, and uh, and it, and it's just this got not just that as far as a hook, and 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 the kind of the motif, but also uh, Curtis Blow going through this really ser- clever series of lyrics over the stretch of it, and basically any meaning and any way that you can use break that's humanly possible, 
mm. Curtis Blow uh, does so uh, in uh, in this song. It's uh, still one of the. It's catchy as hell. Uh, it's it's fun as hell, and it's still to this day one of the most engaging uh, hip hop singles uh, of all time. I think that it. Uh, uh, without the breaks, you don't get a whole lot of other songs. I mean, it's like Curtis Blow is basically uh, teaching people how to do hip hop well on yeah. record, and 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 really uh, making you know. Remember, the DJ had always been the uh, uh, the, the star of the the yeah. hip hop parties in the Bronx and elsewhere there, and uh, not really the MCs. Well, that started to change, obviously, with Rappers Delight. And it really becomes the case that the MC is is predominant when Curtis Blow hits with these songs. Arturo, what do you say about yeah. these songs? Well, the about Curtis, it's a great song. It's an important hip hop single. But by by current standards of of rapping artistry and the art of the flow, Curtis yeah. Blow his delivery and his style of rapping is kind of ancient. It doesn't really yeah. age no, well, does it? No, it, it it is ancient. And but again, it's clever. It works, but it's not exactly poetry. You know, it's, yeah. it's you know it, it's not Gil Scott Heron. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not even Tupac. <laughs> no, he's not even he's not even Tupac. Uh, and so, yeah, there there is a little bit of an ancientness to it, but it works. And, and as a pop song, again, I think that because it's got hooks and it, it works as a pop song, and I think that that was a revelation uh, right. at the time that it came out that it wasn't just this fifteen minute uh, distillation of a hip hop concert, which essentially is what. Uh, rapper's delight is and that's what super rapping is too it's it's like this you know double digit minute distillation of one of the concerts this was an actual single and this was an actual song and this was an actual pop hook uh fest yeah so i yeah. think that that's what makes it important but not quite as important as the next song yeah the next song the song that made the german electronic group Kraftwerk more popular in america than ever before <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force. Uh, now, here is is kind of a a, a turn uh, in hip hop where the, this is, I think, the first time where the producer starts to become a star as well. Right. You know, for these songs, Bambata was looking to kind of, you know, he had the side of like one love, one unity. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, he wanted that, you know, peace, love, unity. And having fun with, with that was the uh, the motto of the Zulu Nation. He was trying to capture that in in music, uh, mm -hmm. and he was able to do that uh, by uh, hooking up with a uh, originally from Boston, but then relocated to New York, a producer named Arthur Baker, who mm -hmm. later became more famous for working with New Order. Uh, that right. that became his more 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 famous uh, uh, hook. But uh, together, Baker and Bambada. You know, they have a shared love for craft work mm. and they want to sort of memorialize this. And so here, here's a true fact. There is not actually a sample of craft work in that song. Oh, it's more of an interpolation of the drum part from numbers mm. by craft work. And, you know, and, you know, really kind of that, you know, that kind of uh, that, that, that clap trap drum uh, mm. that that's in that and that kind of uh, thing yeah. that kind of drives it they they interpolated that uh in the drum machine work uh they interpolated that song numbers from by Kraftwerk. didn't sample it but mm -hmm. the the rest of it the keyboards the vocoder you know the the uh, the vibes in it it's all you know uh, there was a musician named john roby 
who was mm -hmm. responsible for most of that. And uh, right. they, they came up with that. And it's six and a half minutes of just this funky as hell, you know, Germanic uh, uh, disco song that uh, really kind of captures uh, Bambata's uh, philosophy, you know, one one planet under rock, so to speak, and uh, just really uh, encapsulates, it, it, it bridges the gap between, it, it shows that hip-hop could be a dance music, but also, you know, shares a lot in common with that sort of European, that, motor, that motorique. So motorique and, and hip-hop beats now shared something in common, and it was because Bambada and Baker had that vision uh, to put it together. So tremendous, tremendous song. Uh, the John Roby uh, uh, keyboard work in it is especially fantastic. Uh, what say you, right. Art? Yeah, no, I mean, this this is came out in 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a seminal uh, uh, track. Africa Bambada should be remembered. Unfortunately, uh, his personal life is uh, taking a little yeah. more precedence in recent years with the... Yep. Accusations of pedophilia, basically. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of gotten in the way. Yeah, but he should be remembered as a pioneer. Um, again, again, another one, another early hip hop great who no, they they were not an out, they were not albums artists, they were singles artists. Yeah, and, uh, and then this uh, may be his most defining single. Yeah, absolutely, his most defining single. And and for what it's worth, I, I encourage people to check out some of his other singles, Renegades of Funk. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking for the Perfect Beat, which is my personal favorite uh, one. There's a Jazzy right. Sensation, which is another one of those Arthur Baker uh, songs originally from 1982. So uh, right. just really, uh, really visionary, visionary stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, as is our next uh, song and songs uh, on this list, right, Art? Yes, the next one. This one comes, I think, yes, it is also from 1982. It is Grandmaster Flash. DJ and the Furious Five, who are the rapping group. And they had two tracks this year, The Message and White Lines. And actually, I got to correct you uh, on on here. White Lines is actually, turns out, is from 84. 84. Uh, okay, my yeah. mistake. But no, 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 no. My mistake, actually, because uh, <laughs> I, I told you about that first. Oh. But anyway, uh, so The Message, uh, yeah, is, is on an album. It, it's of the same name called The Message from 1982. And uh, it's actually here. It's got kind of a weird history. And and here it is. There's a guy that they were signed to Sugar Hill Records and Sugar Hill right. Records basically had a house band. And there yeah. was a guy in the house band. I believe he was their mm -hmm. percussionist, a guy named Duke Booty. <laughs> uh, yeah. Duke Booty. Yeah. And that, that, that was his performance name. And uh, he uh, he was a lyricist and he was a producer. And uh, he actually, along with the the other guys in Sugar Hill Records, that they came up with that beat, you know, with the that yeah. that you know, famous synth loop. Uh, that I think right. everybody knows that. Dun 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 dun. Yeah. Dun 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 And he came up with that. And he he wrote most of the lyrics. Uh, and they essentially they wrote it, not originally. They 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 had the song. And then Sylvia Robinson was like, well, I think that would be perfect for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Well, right. it turns out Grandmaster Flash wanted nothing to do with it because, you know, <laughs> he was uncomfortable with the whole social conscience message of it wow. and sort of, you know, right. the you know the imagery of of the uh, of the streets and of the sort of right. the bleakness of, of that life. And it's, you know, it's like a jungle. Sometimes it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Right. And right. He, he didn't want anything to do with that. 
Well, Melly right. Mel turns out who was the main rapper in the Furious Five. I think he was also that, the main lyricist too, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and he was the main lyricist. And yeah. so uh, he turns out he was cool with it, and he lent uh, some lyrics and some rapping that he had uh, from previous. Uh, it was a unreleased uh, verse from uh, Super Rapping. Well, he took some of that and performed and he agreed to perform on the song and actually it was a dispute between Melly Mel and Grandmaster Flash because of this that actually broke up the Furious Five yeah and uh, that, so Melly that's Mel why uh, that, that's why technically the the credit for white lines uh, don't do it is Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel yeah not or Gra yeah and and yeah the, the original record said Grandmaster and Melly Mel yeah. And so so and yeah, by the way Chris it came out in 1983 actually white lines that uh white lines yeah 83 okay Gotcha. Okay. Well, we we eventually get it right here at, at the the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. So Duke Booty and Melly Mel they they co-write the lyrics and they co they co-rap it and uh, yeah, it becomes one of the great still to this day one of the great hip hop songs of all time. And again, you know, the rhyming is a little bit primitive there as well. But the hook, but the lyrics are not the lyrics. The lyrics, are, the lyrics, are, the really lyrics are universal. The lyrics, you know, they 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 maintain and that hook. Uh, yeah. will will live on in perpetuity. It's 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 one of the best hooks in the history of of, of hip hop, uh, you yeah. know. And so, not only do they have one of the great musical hooks with that synthesizer line, but they have one of the great lyrical hooks with mm -hmm. that. Make you know, it makes me wonder how it you keep keep from going under. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just marvelous, marvelous uh, stuff. Uh, White lines is a song, as the, the the name suggests, is a song about the dangers of cocaine. Right. And uh, that's another song that was kind of produced by the house band and uh, uh, at Sugar Hill Records. But Melly Mel just sort of that's more of a, a star vehicle for him. Mm -hmm. And originally it was going to be an ironic like Sylvia Robinson uh, co-wrote it as well. That it was going to be kind of an ironic tribute to cocaine. And so like, they're, they're going to make it sound like the most wonderful thing. Yeah. But, but no, but they, it's, it's, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> yeah. But 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 they decided to kind of play it more straight than that, you know, because right. obviously the, I think that the the full name of the song is White Lines parentheses don't do it, right? And so it becomes more of a a cautionary song uh, mm -hmm. in the end. But there again, it has a fabulous baseline to it, and it's just a really rocking song and really great hook to it. You know, something like a phenomenon, and yeah. just <laughs> just really just kind of there. And so again, it's glorified disco, but it works. And uh, right. and it's probably Melly Mel's finest moment as a rapper is on right. that song. However, now we got the, we got the social commentary. The next key single is by arguably hip hop's first real rock stars, and yep. uh, one of their one of their one of their first singles is also to this day still one of their best tracks ever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're talking about "It's Like That" by Run DMC, uh, and so uh, story there is uh, that. Uh, Russell Simmons' little brother, Joey uh, Simmons, right. is run. And right. uh, they, they're looking to get into the rap game, and or he's looking to become a rapper. And uh, at some point, he hooks up with a high school friend of his uh, named Daryl McDaniels, uh, otherwise known as DMC. Yeah. And the two of them come together, and they start working with a producer uh, named Larry Smith, uh, who was mm -hmm. part of a, an outfit uh, called Orange Crush. And they right. come together and they start making these songs. The, the first two songs they did, they wanted to come up with a single that they come up with. It's right. like that. And on the B side, uh, Sucker MCs. Mm -hmm. 
which mm. is you know almost as famous but it's like that it's just got this uh really great little minimal uh beat where it's just really spare and menacing and it's got run and dmc trading lyrics back and forth about crime and poverty and about yeah and about just sort of you know dealing with uh, with life in the ghetto it's basically ghetto yeah. philosophizing right you know with you know with that hook it's like that and that's the way it is and and so all the song is is literally it's just a bass drum a snare and a keyboard note on the one mm. and and you you keep getting that keyboard note on the one and it goes through that uh the entire song uh that that way and again the b-side was sucker mcs which was another minimalist classic that actually hits harder mm. because it's got myriad uh, disses and and boasts and and that song is all drums and claps and right. so what they're doing is they're starting to, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, with, what they're doing is they're distilling hip-hop back to its elements and, yeah. and, and, and to its essence. And so instead of sort of this the, the disco filler that a lot of what the early songs were, they're getting it back. It's minimal, it's spare, it's sparse, it's bare bones, it's tough. You know, yeah. it's uh, and it's it it's just it gives them like ample space for their voices and for their lyrics to shine, yeah. and so it's it's almost revolutionary in a sense yeah. uh, what they're doing, and yeah. it's like that. It's it to to me, it's still my favorite Run DMC single because it is so simple, mm. and uh, really really good stuff. Uh, any thoughts about this Run DMC song specifically? Well, so exactly. It's minimalism. It's minimalism at its best, and it's the space. Uh, the, the, this track has a lot of space in it, and yep. sometimes it, you know it's a testament to the fact that in music, in any kind of music, sometimes uh, the best notes you can play are the ones you don't play. Yeah, <laughs> and leaving the space out there, and the space yeah. itself is an ambiance for the track. And a lot of musicians today, especially today, who are obsessed with complexity and having yep. you know as many chord progressions as possible, playing as many notes in one minute as possible, and that's why their music is forgotten and nobody remembers it because they don't utilize space, they don't utilize air, giving yep. giving uh, giving the music air to breathe. And a lot of contemporary and modern, not just hip hop, but just in other genres of music, don't understand that. And that's why their music sucks and won't be remembered. Sorry. Right. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, it's minimal, but the beats that are there hit hard. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that's why they hit hard, because the space is there. It augments. When it does hit, yeah. it hits harder than if you have a lot of notes and beats going on at the same time. Right. And, and in, in that sense, it gets pretty hypnotic. Actually, yeah. because it's like a five, you know, a lot of the Run DMC songs, and we'll get into this later. They early ones, they ran like four to six minutes. Yeah, uh, you know, they were not short songs, and they were not short uh, exercises. You know, and they were minimal, and and so they went on like that, and so they kind of get this hypnotic effect going, and it's like hypnosis in action. Uh, it's right. it's pretty tremendous. Okay, so the next couple of singles we're going to talk about, and so this is like one of. Uh, you know, battle rap became a thing, and you know, you would get like these, uh, you would get these battles, or you would and, get these. And, well, and it's not just battle rap in the history of hip hop. Beefs. Female yep. rappers tend to be overlooked. Yeah. And here are female hip hop artists. I mean, breaking ground not just for being women in a mostly male field, but doing the battle rapping as well. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so that so what we're talking about here is this is one of the the, the, the great like musical first musical beefs. That you had, uh, that you have the song Roxanne Roxanne by three guys from Brooklyn named UTFO. 
Yeah. Uh, that was their that was their thing. And it was basically a song about them uh trying to uh get in with a girl named Roxanne. Roxanne, Roxanne, yeah. I wanna be your man. Yeah. Uh a lot of a lot of folks our age will remember that one from elementary school. Uh that 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 became a huge uh that became a huge hit. Uh and then but what happened was so you get this song, Roxanne, Roxanne, and and it's just it's not exactly the most forward thinking song you know it's it's not that in and of itself it's not feminist but what it did yeah. is it spurred a whole bunch of response songs from yes. women ostensibly known as uh, calling themselves Roxanne yeah and the most famous and easily the best of these is Roxanne's Revenge yes. by Roxanne Roxanne Chante yeah now Roxanne Chante when she did this was only 16 years old but she had she was from Queens and mm -hmm. she had uh, the the good fortune of being friends with a very young uh, uh, producer named Marley Marl, who mm -hmm. uh, went on to become one of the best uh, hip hop producers of all time. Worked with Big Daddy Kane, Biz Marquis, yeah. uh, and and a number of others. And so, so what you have here is you have UTFO doing the song about courting not so successfully a young lady named Roxanne, and then Roxanne's Revenge is a response song meant to be the other side of the courtship. And it comes com complete with disses, big time disses of the UTFO rappers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's she's bragging about her skills as a rapper and putting down theirs. And the beat mimics the original. It's not quite like the original, but it mimics the original. And so so you had this this great and 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 more stuff came from this and went back and forth between UTFO and Roxanne Chante. And it right. just started this kind of back and forth. And it was all, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Tupac and Biggie where people ended up getting murdered. Uh, it, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was, it was more in good fun, but it was yeah. kind of, you know, it was, uh, it was a little bit sophomoric, but it was cool. And when I was nine years old, it was big in my schools. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was big in my school and, uh, just a lot of fun and just a, a lot of a lot of good stuff and especially Roxanne's revenge that is some clever clever shit yeah um to uh pile on top of the the Roxanne Shante thing the following year in 1985 uh she got involved in another rap battle uh, uh Roxanne Shante did with uh, uh another a female rapper named Sparky D uh, mm -hmm. In 1985, Roxanne Shante put out Bite This, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then she name-checked Sparky D. Sparky D came back at her with a single called Sparky's Turn, in parentheses, Roxanne, You're Through. <laughs> both mm -hmm. those tracks are awesome, and I think they're both better than Roxanne, Roxanne, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing here, not too long ago, Netflix put out a biopic. A, a dramatic film about the life of Roxanne Shante called Roxanne Roxanne. Uh, if you're interested in uh, watching a biopic about Roxanne Shante's life, go check that out. Yeah, I'll definitely, definitely will. So the next song, and this is an, another song that harkens back to my elementary school days as a nine-year-old <laughs> in, in Syracuse, New York, that not only was Roxanne Roxanne and Roxanne's Revenge the big thing with the kids back then, but there was also The Fat Boys. <laughs> uh when the song they the love fat, they love their beatboxing yes they do <laughs> fat the, and the song fat boys are back and uh, tr true story and shows how much of a dumb kid i was for years i thought that was fat boys are black <laughs> and i'm like why yes the fat boys are black uh <laughs> but but anyway uh so 
the fat boys were were basically like hip hop comedians. They were three, yes, fat guys uh, from <laughs> New York that yeah. uh, rapped about food and about you know sort of comical romantic stuff, but mostly about food. Uh, and so you know, so this song, it's got this you know really kind of corny uh, like five note keyboard uh, note uh, beat with yeah. uh, with women in the you know ch chanting in the back. The fat boys are back. And then <laughs> with Prince Marky D, Cool Rock Ski, and Buff Love, uh, each taking turns rapping, especially Prince Marky D, where he has like this one weird ass rhyme about eating beans and bananas. <laughs> and then uh, Buff Love was the human beatbox, yes. and so and and he, but his beatbox was the was like the corniest, most amateurish version possible. It was the <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, basically what mo what most white people think of as beatbox, they think of Buff Love. <laughs> uh, and that's who they they would think of and so you were talking it was definitely a lowest common denominator phenomenon yeah which is probably why it was such a big hit among the kids in my school uh not necessarily with me but with the kids in my school they loved themselves some fat boys i'm telling you <laughs> it was uh it was it was something, they, something they, they, were pop, they were popular in miami too when i was living in miami at that time fat uh, boys were big man yeah, I could see it. They, they kind of like would be a precursor to booty music. They're certainly just as juvenile. <laughs> they were cheesy. They were really cheesy, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then of course they they took advantage of their sort of their their, their comic shtick. And a couple years later, they got a they got a, a big hit with the song Wipeout. They did a song called Wipeout that had the yeah. featuring the Beach Boys. And <laughs> and then they did a and then they did a rap version of the Twist with Chubby yeah. Ch with Chubby Checker on the hook in like 1988. <laughs> So yeah, and then and then of course they did one of the funniest movies of all time, Disorderlies. <laughs> if you've ever seen Disorderlies, uh, no. Art, but but that 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 is like one of the dumbest, funniest ass movies of all time. I, I definitely recommend it. Anybody that loves dumbass movies and hip hop and yes. the Fat Boys, uh, mm -hmm. that, that that movie is for you, boy. That movie is for you. <laughs> I'm telling you. And then we end this uh, this this roll call of hip hop singles. By actually, this is one of the best, and this is uh, a, a kind of a bridge song, and it's kind of an early preview of hip hop's golden age. And you know, it this predates Rakim and uh, a few other and Chuck D by a couple of years. We're talking Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick doing Lottie Dottie, mm. uh, and all hail the beatbox. And this is yeah. the real beatbox. Uh, right. Dougie Fresh is the greatest beatboxer in the history of mankind. Uh, he could do some stuff with his mouth that you you, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't think like Rozell is about the only one that competes, but right. Dougie Fresh could really do some great uh, some really original stuff uh, with his mouth that, that really kind of mirrored per percussion of all kinds mm -hmm. of of all of all styles. So you mm -hmm. get him and you combine him with uh, Slick Rick, who was originally from Britain and is one of the great storyteller rappers of all time. Yes. And uh really, really funny. It has this kind of has this kind of laconic uh, you know, kind of yeah. performing voice. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It went just really, really uh, fun. Well, this song, you know, Lottie Dottie, you know, people remember it. Uh, Snoop Dogg made it popular in 1993, he covered it, you know, Lottie Dottie, we likes to party, you know. <laughs> you know we just some yeah. we just some men up on the mic, and when we rock yeah. the mic, we rock the mic hype. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's just a really silly song, but it's basically it, uh, it Rick recalling a day where first he's like you know primping and preening in front of in uh, front of his mirror, you know yeah. where he's getting getting ready for the day in his bathroom, but then he runs into an old girlfriend, uh, 
And right. then all of a sudden, the old girlfriend's mom comes out, starts beating up the old girlfriend because he she wants to be with Rick. And <laughs> and then Rick fighting off the mom because mm -hmm. the mom really wants to be with Rick. So it's it's kind of and it gets a little uh, it gets a little blue. Uh, he makes a reference to her wrinkly pussy. Uh, <laughs> so so it does get a little blue, uh, but yeah. it's it's a fun song and it's got a lyrical sophistication to it that was really, really rare. Uh, at yeah. this point, uh, you know, when we're talking, this song was from 1985. You, you really didn't, uh, you know, like Rick became more famous about 1988, but yeah. but this predates Rakim and Chuck D and KRS-One by a couple of years. So really, right. really seminal, uh, seminal single. And it, it, it kind of shows where the bridge was going to. And this is sort of the end of the bridge. And that's where it was going to. All right. Any thoughts about Lottie Dottie? Yeah, well, th yeah, this song is great. I think Slick Rick would do better tracks later on, though. Oh, he did. Uh, he, he he would do a uh, um, children's story back in nineteen eighty nine. He also did a treater like a prostitute, hmm. <laughs> a classic case of hip hop misogyny, if there ever was one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know. It, yeah, indeed. Yeah, but nah. he, he he was he yes, Slick Rick was one of the pioneers of storytelling hip hop or storytelling rap. But he wasn't really the first one there. There were people doing it before him. Um, yeah. for example, back in 1983, there's a really dark song by a guy called The Rake called oh, yeah. Street Justice. And basically it is a harrowing story about like a, a thug gang that break into his home rape his wife and kill his daughter um they get arrested gets get put in front of a judge they get off uh they they don't get committed so he decides to take you know a, a vigilante justice on his own stays in his house um the the, the guys who were charged who were charged with the crime but were not uh were not convicted threatened to kill that guy we're gonna kill you because you know you 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 told on us and uh at the end of the story he's at his home with his guns waiting for the the thugs to come and come at him he kills them all and he basically acknowledges and he accepts that yes i'm going to prison for what i did but i'm glad i did it and i don't care if i die in prison for it that's yeah. pretty dark yeah <laughs> the, 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 yikes that yeah. that, that is check it out shit. it's called street justice by the rake from 1983 yeah it, it's a story rap story rap like slick rick but oh boy it is nothing funny about it <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing funny at all. Nothing funny at all. So uh, their ends are, are so you can tell a lot of this story by those singles and about, you know, there's an increasing sophistication as it goes along. Uh, right. You're starting to get away from the disco and getting into something that's a little bit more uh, true to the streets and true to the Bronx. Well, at some point you figure, you know, it kind of like the evolution of rock and roll where it starts off as singles and then uh, in, in comes the album as a form of mm -hmm. expression. Well, you knew yeah. that eventually that would happen to hip hop. And it did starting in early 1984 is when this starts to happen. Right. And right. it starts with our friends run DMC uh, yes. and their debut record uh, run DMC. And so this kind of tells the the story of, you know, that there's sort of some interlap, some, some overlapping stories uh, mm -hmm. to, to tell here. There's the, the story of run DMC and their, association with profile records and there's the overlapping story of the birth of def jam which mm -hmm. you know russell simmons was you know joey simmons uh brother russell we've talked mm -hmm. about him he was an entrepreneur he was a promoter he was uh he was a, a businessman and a visionary uh who ho eventually hooks up with rick rubin 
who was a, mm-hmm. a student at NYU living in a dorm when they first right. got together and they formed uh, Def Jam in early 84. Well, at the same time, uh, Russell's working to to break uh, his brother's band, Run DMC, on profile. And so th- in a lot of ways, this sort of overlaps. And so uh, the combination of them, Run DMC, Profile, uh, Russell Simmons, Rick Rubin, and then we'll talk about LL Cool J. Eventually, they turn yeah. it. They 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 really revolutionize hip hop by by really just sort of distilling it down to its main elements, to the beat, to the rhyme, and to the right. energy. Like you already talked about that space. Yes, you know, uh, you know in, in between uh, everything else, and and how minimalism is uh, beneficial and that especially happens uh, uh, in, in with these albums and, and during this streak. So anyway, to organize this a little bit, a little bit better, let's talk about Run DMC's self-titled uh, debut album. Now, again, they had struck, uh, you know, they had made a name for themselves in late 83 with the single It's Like That uh, on the A-side and Sucker MCs on the B-side. Well, the heads of Profile Records, you know, they get them to do a couple more singles they have jam master j and then uh, hard times which uh, may actually be the best song on the record besides it's it's like that it, it it's the first track on it and it's another sort of uh crime poverty and sort of uh bad days ahead type of song are you sure that wasn't uh, uh um that wasn't inspired by the famous dusty Rhodes promo no it, it, it was not hard times for dusty Rhodes and his family <laughs> it was hard it was hard times for run dmc <laughs> Let, let's just clarify that no 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 baby come on baby it was not hot times uh but anyway uh <laughs> that was good uh so they had like four singles in the can by the end of 83 well the heads of profile records are like well what if we you know this is so revolutionary what these guys are doing distilling it down to their element and you know really uh you know going minimal you know you know you know really featuring the the rapping you know they have the tag team rapping they have the energy you know they have that they have that freshness to them all that well what if we could get an, a whole album out of this you know i want to release an album so let's get them try to convince them to record five or six more songs and let's get a whole like 40 minute album out of this well out of that comes rockbox which mm-hmm. is uh, probably the most uh important uh, hip hop single of all time only mm. in the sense of a couple of things. One, it it grafts rock and roll with hip hop explicitly. Uh, a guy named Eddie Martinez plays guitar and shreds like a mother on that song. Yeah, right. And and really, uh, and so not only so it's it's in the same sort of minimal stripped down spirit, but with guitars uh, running mm. through the drums as well. Uh, right. And so you get that. And it was also the first hip hop song to get airplay on MTV. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, so the video for that. So that's why it's it's hugely important because it it kind of splices the idea of rap and rock together, and it yeah. gets on and it, and it gets on MTV, and so they eventually get nine songs out of it, and they put this out, and it becomes a huge hit. Uh, it's still considered one of the best uh, hip hop albums uh, ever made. It's actually number three hundred and seventy eight on Rolling Stone's five hundred greatest albums list of all time. Uh, that they came out with in twenty twenty. Uh, as far as the album's performance itself, it peaked at number 53 on the Billboard 200. Uh, it also reached number 14 on the top R&B hip-hop albums chart. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first hip-hop album to ever be certified gold by mm-hmm. the RIAA. 
Uh, that wow. happened by the end of 19, uh, 1984. And right. so, again, you know, the, the thing that's striking about this record is it's, it's so unlike the stuff that came before it. It's, it's nothing like Planet Rock. It's nothing like the Sugar Hill Gang. It's nothing like even The Message. It's nothing like any of these things. It's just, it's spare. It's in your face. It's it's just, it's, it's all drums and rapping. And, <laughs> yeah. and so... Yeah, well, well, you know who also liked this album, Chris? Who's that? Well, our, our no resident, uh, our resident music critic that we adore so much, Robert Criscow. Robert Criscow. What, what, what did Criscow have to say? Okay, he said, "Quote: Though a bit upwardly mobile for the highbrow lowbrows who regard money lust and the death throes of capitalism as two sides of rap's only fit subject, DJ Run boasted about attending St. John's of all things." The competitive fatalism of the spare, brutal, it's like that sucker MCs was unforced and dead on. And Eddie Martinez's Hendrix Funkadelic Metal on the expansive rock box proves that even street minimalists can love guitars. But this does more than fill in around two of the finest singles of the past couple of years. It's easily the canniest and most formally sustained rap album ever. He wrote this in 1984. A tour de force I trust will be studied by all manner of creative downtowners and racially enlightened Englishmen. And he was right. <laughs> While their heavy staccato and proud disdain for melody may prove too avant-garde for some, the style has been in the New York air long enough that you may understand it better than you think. Do you have zero tolerance for namby-pamby bullshit? Do you believe in yourself above all? And chances are you share Run DMC's values. A minus. There you go. And in, in, in case everybody was wondering, it, it it definitely proved not to be too avant-garde. <laughs> it, it, he, he wrote it. He, he wrote a review for the follow-ups uh, album King of Rock from 1985. Yep. Not as long. He's a little down. He's a little more down on it, but it's much funnier. <laughs> okay, and 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 do share that. All right, King of Rock from 1985, the follow-up to this classic self-titled debut by Run DMC. Quote: You can tell these guys are real rock and rollers because they sounded so much fresher before they got what they wanted. And you can tell they didn't get it all because their rhymes still make a lot of sense sometimes. Especially You're Blind, a protest for and at the ghetto rather than about it. But their well-timed You Talk Too Much, one of my favorite songs, yeah. uh, routine runs aground on stupid insults, nagging wife, gosh, and old jokes. Why don't you find a short pier and take a long walk? Groan. It's not funny is either a perverse, albeit well-named joke, or a complete washout. Even the boasts run thin. Take airplane flights at huge heights. I mean, what do sucker MCs do? Just taxi around the runway? B plus. <laughs> okay, yeah, that 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 is pretty good, but it it it's pretty much indicative of of Run DMC. Uh, and I will say this, and so here's another legacy of of this album and of of Run DMC, uh, and this is from Raheem of the mm -hmm. Furious Five, Gram uh, the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and talking about Run DMC and, and their success. And this is from uh, The Come Up. Quote, to us, Run DMC helped white people figure out how to rap. And that was a good thing and a bad thing to us at the same time. It was necessary in order to push the culture forward and develop its growth. But when you have something organic, 
as soon as the corporate world puts $2 into it, it changes the nature of what that thing was forever, mm. which in, in a way is a good point, but yeah. not immediately because yeah. what happens is, is you know, Rick Rubin and, you know, Russell Simmons. So you get, you know, so Russell kind of co-produced uh, the, the first run, D, run DMC record with Larry Smith. And they came up with that sort of that template for mm. you know the the big drums and the kind of the, the the guitars or the sort of the the little touches. Well, Rick Rubin takes that and he finds you know Def Jam finds this uh, this young kid, the sixteen year old kid from Long Island named James Todd Smith, mm-hmm. who uh, was a little bit of a prodigy in terms of his. Uh, charisma in terms of his uh, rhyming skill and his lyrics and they're like okay this guy's a star so let's put it together and then Ruben comes up with his own minimal uh guitar and drum driven style mm-hmm. and mix and misses it mixes it with uh, the uh the, the stylings of one James Todd Smith who you uh, otherwise known as uh ladies love cool James mm-hmm. or LL Cool J Right. And so with Ruben and LL Cool J, they worked together and they released the album Radio, which was the first full length uh, album released by Def Jam mm-hmm. uh, in 1985. And so this is kind of where it, it, it all starts to make sense that there's there's a phenomenon happening with Run DMC uh, when they're on profile, along with Russell, while Russell's working with Rick Rubin to get Def Jam off the ground. Uh, they further that minimalism, and then they find uh, one of the great stars in the history of hip hop, and it culminates in this great album, Radio. And LL yeah. Cool J is—he pretty much is like the James Dean of rap. You know, he's just like, you know, he—you know—he's—he's he's just one of those dudes that like dudes look at and say, "Yeah, you got it going on, man." You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you—you you can't help it. The guy is just pure charisma. But he also was incredibly, incredibly talented uh, as a rapper. I think for, people forget that. And it's amazing to me that this is a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old kid that is rhyming with sophistication and, you know, has that edge to him uh, you know, throughout. He's got that braggadocio. He's got the battle rap. But he also can balance that out with stuff that's more tender and sometimes that are more clever. And, he, you know, sometimes, they, they, you know, he has rap songs that approach a ballad feel. Uh, in the lyrics he doesn't get there he actually says before uh, the album closer is a song called i want you but he's he even says at the beginning of it look girl i'm not gonna sing because i just don't do that mm-hmm. and so but but he but he's macking hard for this girl's affection anyway and he's doing it in the rhyme you right. know like one of his lines is without you my life is bitter like a lemon mm-hmm. uh and so you know so all, all throughout i mean you know you've got uh you know some seminal seminal stuff comes on this there's the song rock the bells which yeah. probably has one of the three or four most quintessential Ruben beats where it has like this scratched out guitar lick that introduces uh, that's introduced and reinforced uh, throughout the, uh, the song. And it's, it's got this otherwise sort of uh, spare kind of skittering uh, beat. And uh, it starts off with the famous lyric, LL Cool J is hard as hell uh, <laughs> at the beginning of it. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's one of the best singles in the hi- history of hip hop and, and it holds up. Because, you know, LL had a flow that is one of the more emulated flows uh, in the history of hip hop. I mean, he's right there with Slick Rick. He's right there with uh, uh, KRS-One. He's right there with Chuck D. He's, he's the most underrated of those guys by a lot. Uh, but he he was incredible. 
And yeah, and he's, he's I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm I'm chalk me up for one of those guys who was never that impressed with LL Cool J. Um, I'm not gonna say he was a, a shitty rapper. He wasn't, but he his 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 stuff got a little too soft. Um, I mean, th this first album that he put out, Radio, was probably his best one. Because by yeah. the end of the 1980s, he was kind of made fun of by a lot of people in the hip-hop community. He was becoming kind of a joke for all his ballads and his boasting about how good he is and how fine he is with the ladies and how good-looking yeah. he is. And he, he, he kind of became a target for a lot of criticism by other rappers. Yeah. You know? Well, so, well, 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 he had, he, he was, he was, the, he was the most subtle misogynist in the history of hip hop, <laughs> you know, that he, yeah. he, he, he played the ladies man, but he kind of did it in a way that was like, you know, you know, you women can't resist me because, you know, I, I'm that type of guy, <laughs> you know, and, you know, some of that other stuff where I need love and all this other stuff. So he made, he made you think that he was being all smooth when he was being just, you know, he was being the kind of like kind of the shameless Ken you know, from yeah. like the Barbie movie, you know, he's yeah. kind of like that. He's, he's really a shameless Ken where people yeah. think, you know, he, he, where, you know, he's trying to play a lover man, but, yeah. uh, which is kind of funny because like the most, uh, misogynistic song he ever did is probably on radio, uh, dear Yvette, <laughs> which is just hilarious. He says, you know, like Santa Claus said, you're a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> you know? And so they said there, there's no real swearing in it. It's just, it's just clean brutality. And yeah. he he's really uh, he's really carving Yvette up uh, in mm -hmm. this song, and so you have those, and then you have the 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 title track. Really, I can't live without my radio, which is mm -hmm. it's all drum blasts and claps. It's got scratches on the chorus, and it's just uh, just nasty rapping from LL. Yeah. And like I said, LL at his best, he was as good as those other guys I've mentioned. And again, like you said, he became kind of a joke because he had that kind of lover boy persona. Yeah. That he built up up for himself over the last, right. uh, you know, like from '87 to '90. Right. Uh, but man, he that dude could rap. That that dude could write, and that dude could rap, and he really shows that uh, on radio. And so, so like I said, so the, the, these two albums that I've talked about, uh, the Run DMC record, the self-titled one, and Radio, really establish hip hop as an album. Uh, oriented mm. uh, right. genre as well as a singles oriented genre, and then it proves that it, that a, a hip hop album could be a thing that could be successful. And, and that really, as much as anything sets up uh hip hop, what we, what I call hip hop's golden age from mm. 1986 through 1991. And it, right. it just sets up, you know, where you get like one great album after another. And mm. uh, really it was, and even Chuck DM, uh, Chuck D, <laughs> Chuck mm. DMC, even Chuck <laughs> D from uh, public enemy has even said it that like run DMC taught everybody how to do an LL. They taught everybody how to do a rap album. Yeah. You know, and even as an homage, I mean, Rock the Bells is uh, uh, is uh, uh, prominently in, in in a spot sampled in Night of the Living Bassheads by P.E. <laughs> on It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. So yeah. the, these two albums taught everybody how to do it. And then it sets up the golden age. So any other thoughts about these two albums, Arturo? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, personally, I'm for when it comes to Run DMC, I'm, I'm partial. I'm more partial to Raising Hell. Than I yeah, am. Oh, I am too. Debut, you know, uh, yeah. but the self-titled debut is important. Uh, it, it, it has uh, it has one of the most fascinating um, ambient soundscapes of any hip hop album. And uh, like I said, I'm not a huge LL Cool J fan as much as you are, but I do give props to Radio, especially the single. Uh, that is yeah. a titanic uh, early hip hop single. 
And yeah. it is one of the best singles of all time. So yeah, yeah I, I do agree with, with those albums being having their, you know, and ending this era of hip hop with those two albums as like the, in the foremost, in the, in the, in the forefront, I should say. Yeah. And uh, it, I should mention, by the way, that radio peaked at number six on the top R&B hip hop albums chart and at mm. number 46 on the Billboard 200 okay. albums chart. And it, it also went platinum wow. uh, by 86. So, okay. uh, so it was a, it was a big success. And just the fact that it reached, uh, that it was still a top 50 album on, on the billboard 200 albums chart is, is, is really something, uh, at that point. And then finally, we just, uh, we just have to end it, you know, that by the end of this period where hip hop comes of age, uh, it, 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 uh, it's always a thing when white people in Hollywood discover your product. Yeah. And, and so not only are you getting sort of the artsy fartsies, uh, getting fascinated with hip hop, you're also getting Hollywood uh, uh, fascinated right. with it, and so you end up with like uh, three of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> in in a lot of ways, uh, especially Beat Street, uh, you got three three uh, three movies: Breaking, Beat Street, and Crush Groove. And uh, Crush Groove really is uh, that's more 1985, but the other two are 84. And uh, Beat Street kind of takes the the wild style uh, story of the, the the graffiti artists getting discovered, uh, and does it in the corniest way possible. You, you know, like their idea their idea of graffiti is 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 really just kind of amusing. It's just sort of uh, you know like some prop master's idea of what graffiti should be. <laughs> so it's really just a joke. And then breaking, obviously, you know, you get Boogaloo Shrimp uh, and uh, you know Ozone Chambers. <laughs> and uh, and and the girl and basically uh, them auditioning for a fancy college by you know trying to get into like a real like art art school by doing mm. break dancing, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it just just really really corny stuff. And you know, notice by the way is uh, how, uh, how how both of those movies are essentially about white acceptance of of the black art, right? You know, yeah. and so and there's beats. What was it? Break into Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, and that came out in 1985, and oh, that is even cornier. That it's got that hospital dance sequence. Oh yeah, the yeah. surgeons are doing the worm as they're operating. <laughs> yeah, and then you got the you got the Chinese girl like doing the doing the bit with like the walker, you know, just like you know doing like b boy dancing with the walker. So there's that, and then and then Crush Groove is basically it, it mirrors the the origin story of Def Jam, and it's it's it, it features a whole bunch of rappers, and it's kind of more or less a concert film. But it's still yeah. corny. It's still corny as hell. Uh, <laughs> so, yep, it did. It did make the. Uh, it did make the movies. And so, uh, ultimately, I, I think what you could say about this this coming of age period uh, for hip hop, it's kind of fascinating because it really we we we've said before, and we we said it on the last uh, of these hip hop episodes that there was no precedent for it. It was this this completely yeah. organic thing that it it it, it is more culture than anything else and so now you're figuring out okay so you've got this culture and now you've got this happy accident with the sugar hill gang well what do you turn it into how do you turn it into a commodity how do you turn it into an industry what right. shape does it take you know can you can you do something that gets to the radio that can make it onto the big screens that you know how do you how do you do that and i think mm -hmm. that this period is instructive because it's all it's you know it's this un unmatched creativity it's all these creative people and it was really an entrepreneurial culture because what you had a chance to do was define something that had never been defined before 
Right. Yeah. And that's what all these people did. And that, that's what they did through all these singles. And so even like the UTFO Roxanne Chante battle yeah. uh, is, right. is, is uh, you're, you're inventing beefing, you know, you're, in, you're <laughs> yeah. you know, you're inventing battle rapping back and forth. And so you're, so, so the idea of having singles is competition, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right. is just, so that's just, you know, so everything during this period is seminal and untapped. And it's what really makes it incredible uh, to cover because it was boundless, mm. you know. When, when you say that, uh, would you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, because it, it's a genre that's just starting. It's in. It's kind of in. It's in. It, well, yeah, it in, is in, in its infancy. In a yeah. commercial yeah. respect, it's in his infancy, not yeah, as artistic, right? Right. Uh, uh, artistically, it's kind of in, in its adolescence, yeah. but uh, as a commercial force, it's in its infancy. And and yeah, you know, the the the, the there are no limits at this point to what hip hop can be and what it will be. There, you know, this it's the wild wild west still. <laughs> yeah, and and you make a good point, by the way. You make a good point that hip hop was in its adolescence because, you know, uh, that LL. And uh, even uh, DMC have said that they kind of, quote unquote, grew up on hip hop, right. that, you know, that they were familiar with it and were, were vibing on it from even like the stuff in the 70s. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that, you know, LL had discovered rapping by the time he was nine, yeah. uh, according to these books that I'm reading or that yeah. the, these books that I have. And uh, same thing with 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 DMC. They're all about uh, hip hop at this point. And so, yeah, they are second generation. So they're they're taking that spirit and they're taking that stuff and they're figuring out and they're they're kind of carving their own niche by going into the recording aspect right. of it so yeah so yeah so in, in a way you know hip-hop's in its second generation yeah I, yeah I think that you know it's coming of age but it's in its second generation and and this mm -hmm. is kind of the the byproduct all of this is the byproduct of the energy of that second generation yeah so uh, with that, folks, uh, as we are wont to do at the end of these episodes, we encourage you to join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, you know, which is a really great uh, thing that we have going up there. What are you on now? Two thousand five? Are you well, coming up with that's your... that's, co that's coming up soon? Uh, yeah, that's coming up soon. Two thousand five. Yep. And you just did two thousand four, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, definitely, go, folks, go check that out. Uh, I'll be contributing more as we go along, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, join us there, please. Uh, it is an open invitation uh, uh, community. Uh, unless you are uh, not wanted within five, not welcome within 500 feet of a school, we'll probably let you in. Uh, <laughs> if you have any other thoughts or any things to share or if you disagree with anything we've said in this episode, or if you have any other suggestions for, like, hip-hop singles that you loved back in the day, you can hit us up at curmudgeonrock at, at gmail.com. And also, uh, which is our new tradition, we are dropping a Spotify playlist link in the show notes to this yeah. uh, to this episode. So uh, look out for that when, you know, where, wherever you're accessing our podcast from, whether it's Apple or Google or Stitcher or wherever, uh, look for the link to the playlist. Uh, it'll be there and... Uh, Mirth and merriment shall take place. <laughs>